0: Following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. We're starting a new series called I Wish That Wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, and so we're going to look at some passages in the Bible that are weird, strange, bizarre, difficult, uncomfortable, embarrassing, awkward, offensive, whatever kind of adjective you want to use, the stuff that we just would rather God had not put in there, the stuff that just makes us squirm. And there is quite a bit of it there. Uh, But this is coming out of a conviction that we have as Christians that all Scripture is God breathed. That's what the Bible says about itself, that all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and so on. And so that means that even the stuff in the Bible that we find weird and uncomfortable and embarrassing, even that stuff is there for a reason. Even that stuff is inspired by God, that God intended it there for some kind of purpose and that it's got some usefulness That it's got some kind of practical relevance For our lives, so we want to try and dive in and understand what that is. We I really just want to have an honest look at these passages of scripture, Uh, rather than ignoring them. Just look honestly at what they are saying and try and make whatever sense we can of them. Let me just say a couple of things before we dive in. Uh, Firstly, if this is the first time that you've ever opened the Bible, uh, it's not all like this. Okay, it's not all like you might come along this morning and if this is your first day in church, and you open the Bible, um, you might think this is the strangest book in the world a lot of it is actually quite encouraging. A lot of it's really enjoyable to read and quite uplifting and edifying. So let me just say that. It's not all strange, but we're dealing with the exceptional passages okay? In, these, in this series. We're dealing with the stuff that is particularly weird because we don't want to stick our heads in the sand about it. We don't want to just ignore it and pretend it's not there. We want to just deal with it and look at it and, and, and see what, what sense we can make of it. So it's not all like this. Secondly, you've probably got your own list of passages. And I've had a couple of conversations with some of you and you've said, well, what about this passage and what about that? I know that you've got various passages in the Bible that you feel are weird and that you'd like to deal with a little bit more. I've only allocated four weeks to this series, so I've had to be a bit selective, and I've just chosen two passages from the Old Testament and two passages from the New Testament, so I'm sorry if we don't get to your passage. We might be able to deal with it another time, or maybe we can have a conversation about it. But over the next six weeks or so, because there's a couple of other things happening in between, we will deal with these two passages from the Old and two passages from the New, and just have uh, an honest and upfront look at these texts and um, see what kind of interpretation we can give them. So, for this morning, we're going to start off with a really fun passage in the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2, you may have never read this story before, many of you uh, probably don't even know that it's there, and in a few minutes you're going to wish it wasn't, but it is here, and as you're turning there to 2 Kings chapter 2, let me just give you a little bit of context for this story, this is a story about the prophet Elisha. You may have heard of him, Elisha. He often goes with Elijah. We think about Elisha and Elijah together. They lived together and served together as prophets in the Old Testament. About 800 years before Jesus, they lived. And Elijah got taken up to heaven while Elisha was still alive. Elijah got taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And before he went, he passed on his mantle to Elisha. He passed on his prophetic mantle to Elisha, commissioned him to carry on the work that he'd been doing, carrying on the miracles that he'd been doing. And so this story takes place soon after Elijah has been taken up to heaven. He's, he's out of the scene now, and Elisha's now carrying on this prophetic ministry. This is one of the first things that happens when, once Elisha carries this on on his own. So just a few verses, short little story, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. From there... Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. What a great story. See, primary school kids, I knew that you, 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 you're glad you came today. What a wonderful children's story. What a lovely bedtime story. Anyone would like to have a baby dedication this morning? Anyone uh, just putting that out there if anyone wants to? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Pretty grisly story, excuse the pun. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty, pretty brutal. This is definitely an uncomfortable story. I don't know how, what your initial response is to it. One of the things that seems the strangest to me is that there's just no explanation given. Like it's three short verses. This awful thing happens. These two bears come out. They maul the 42 boys. And then Elisha just goes off to Carmel and Samaria. It's just like another day in the office. just carries on. You don't get any interpretation. You don't get any explanation. You're just sort of left thinking, what is this bizarre thing that's happened? And this is certainly a passage that gets held up by uh, those who are critical and skeptical of Christianity uh, as an argument for why we don't want to have anything to do with the God of the Bible. Because if that's who this God is, I mean, if this is a God who sends bears to maul boys, uh, we don't want anything to do with that kind of God. Uh, He is a pretty nasty character. And if the Bible is the kind of book that sanctions that kind of behavior, that condones that and writes about it and records it, uh, we don't want anything to do with the Bible. And you find out there, you don't need to look on the internet, you find all kinds of venomous stuff about this story and it, it, it holds God up to ridicule and holds scripture up to ridicule and just asks how can this stuff possibly be uh, part of our, our scriptures, part of our holy book and part of our faith. So what are we going to do with this? Uh, well, one thing that some people have done with it is to kind of turn the story into a, a moral lesson about respecting your elders. You know, like if you look around this morning, okay, so there's a few people here that are a little bit thin on top. A few people here that maybe, we, we have a few Elishas among us. Let's say that, all right? A few Elisha type figures, a little bit thin on top. And, uh, you know, maybe this could be a story where we say to all of the children here, kids, you know, you really need to respect your elders. You need especially the, the, the guys who are a little bit thin on top here, because if you don't when you walk out of the gym, just around the corner, it could be some bears come out. I'm not saying there will be. But you know, we could put the fear of God into kids and use this as a way of uh, trying to instill some discipline in them and make this a moral lesson about respecting people who are a bit older than you. And some people do that to try and make something of it and try and make some kind of sense of it. When we do that to scripture, and we do it not only with this story, but with many others, what we're doing is turning the Bible into a fable. Uh, I don't know whether many of you have that book, Aesop's Fables. Yeah. And so that's a that's a collection of fictitious stories that teach a moral lesson. Each story has a value or it has a moral lesson attached to it, uh, whether it's, loving your neighbor or forgiving or sharing or respecting or whatever it is there's always a value there and often a lot of the time what we do as parents particularly and as teachers of children is that we fabilize the bible especially old testament stories we take old testament stories and we just look for some kind of moral nugget in there some kind of behavioral truth and we can say that's what this story is about and then we just use the story to push the behavior and that's that's the sum total of of what we see the scriptures being used for When we do that to the Bible, when we do that to the story, we really are hollowing it out. And it's such a shallow way of trying to understand that story. I know that we want to do something with it, but that way of reading Scripture really doesn't do justice to it. The Bible is not just a list of moral lessons. It's not just a list of values and virtues that we can teach our kids. Values and virtues are all part of it. But if that's all we get out of the story, we really haven't done it justice. We really haven't discovered the depth of the story and its place in the ongoing story of Scripture. So what I want to do, and this hopefully won't surprise those of you that are part of our regular church community, what I'd like to do is place this story in the big story. Place this story in the context of the whole big story of Scripture. That's what we're all about here at Shaw. That's what we do week after week after week as we take passages from the Bible and we place them in the context of the meta-narrative of Scripture so that we can understand them within that story. That's where they get their meaning. That's where they, they get their, their sense of purpose from, and we see how they unfold through the whole biblical story. So that, I think, is the best way of approaching this particular story about Elisha and the bears. So I want to start by looking at where the story takes place. Just have a look at that passage again. Verse 23, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. Now, Bethel is a city, was a city, uh, very near Jerusalem in Israel. And it's a city that has tremendous significance in the story of Scripture, particularly in connection with Jacob. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. And Bethel was an important place for him. Bethel is this place where Jacob came and had a dream. And in this dream, God showed him a ladder. Some of you have read this story, a ladder stretching from earth to heaven, and there were angels ascending and descending. On the, this is where the song Stairway to Heaven came from. Yeah, you didn't realize Led Zeppelin was such a spiritual band, right? This is where that happened. So the stairway to heaven in Bethel, Jacob had this dream, and what God was showing him, what God was representing in that dream, was that God's intention was to dwell not only in heaven, but also on earth among his people. So by showing these angels coming up and down the ladder at Bethel, God's saying, I'm not only making my home in heaven, but I want to act on earth. I want to act among people. I'm going to act between heaven and earth. I'm going to move between heaven and earth, and I'm going to be doing my will on earth as it is in heaven. God showed Jacob that at Bethel. He showed him something about his intention to be among us and work among us on earth. Bethel's the place where God confirmed his covenant to Jacob. The covenant that he'd made, With his grandfather Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to give you this land of Canaan. I'm going to give it all to you. This was a place where the covenant was reaffirmed and the blessing was given. This is also the place where God renamed Jacob and said, No longer is your name going to be Jacob. Now you're going to be called Israel. Jacob became Israel and he became the father of the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where this name change happened, all at Bethel. Bethel was the place where God revealed his identity to Jacob and said, I am El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. He revealed himself, revealed something about his nature to Jacob. And and Jacob made a memorial there, built an altar there to commemorate what a significant place this was. When he woke up from his dream, Jacob said, surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't realize it. This is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. And he called that place Bethel. Bethel literally means house of God. That's its name, house of God. And it signifies God's intention to be among his people. So Bethel's a place of revelation. It's a place of promise. It's a place of blessing. Significant place, the house of God. But that identity Bethel has as the house of God is completely undermined by what then takes place in Bethel before Elisha comes along. Once Israel became a monarchy and had kings established, it split into two Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The first king of Israel, king of the northern kingdom, was a king called Jeroboam. One of the first things Jeroboam did when he became king is he set up two pagan altars, two altars or or idols to, to foreign gods who were just false gods. And the shape that these idols took was golden calves. He got two golden calves. Reminds you of the story of the Israelites in the wilderness setting up these golden calves. We'll look at that in the story of Exodus a little bit later in the year. These two golden calves. He set one up in the north of Israel in, in a place called Dan. He set one up in the south of Israel in Bethel. And he said, here are your gods, Israel, who led you out of Egypt. So he is deliberately calling Israel away from faithfulness to God toward faithfulness to these idols. It's, it's not even like mixed worship. It's not even worship God and these idols. It's not... Turn away from God and worship these idols. And from that point on, Bethel became not the house of God, but the house of the golden calf the house of idols, the house of apostasy, the house of idolatry. It became a place that represented Israel breaking faith with God, breaking covenant with God and turning away from the God who had saved them and delivered them through the Red Sea. It became a place that represented everything that was now wrong with Israel and Israel's stubborn refusal to follow and worship their God, Yahweh. And so it's into that scene that Elisha comes. Into this place of idolatry. Into this place that had turned away from the living God. And Elisha comes into Bethel. And as he comes through this town, a bunch of young boys come out. Now the word for young boys here doesn't actually mean children. It means young men. The word could indicate an age anywhere between about 18 and 30. So we'd say young adults. Young adults. So these are not, don't picture young boys running out and making fun of Elisha. These are young men. These are adults. These are people who had a moral conscience. These are people who had a sense of moral responsibility. These are guys who knew exactly what they were doing. And we know that they knew what they were doing by the words that they say. Look at what they say to Elisha. And my translation says, get out of here, baldy. But literally, the words they say are, go up, Baldy, go up. And I think what they're doing is referencing Elijah and how he has just gone up to heaven. He's just been taken up in the chariot. And they've obviously heard about this. And so they're making a mockery of Elijah by saying, why don't you just go follow him? Why don't you just go up to where Elijah was? Just go on up to, I suppose this is the opposite of telling someone to go to hell. You say, just go to heaven. Just go back on up to heaven, you baldy. And so what in the context of Bethel's story, what they're effectively saying is, we don't want this to be the house of God. We just want you to shove off to where your master is. We just want you to shove off to heaven. Just go, go follow him. Just go be with him. We don't want God here with us. We just want him back off in his home in heaven. So this is a total mockery of Elisha as a prophet. It's a mockery of Elijah as a prophet. It's a mockery of God. It's a mockery of heaven. These guys knew what they were doing. They knew what they were saying. It represents the kind of idolatry, the kind of turning away from God that Israel had fallen into at this stage. Not everyone in Bethel was like this. You read in the the chapter just before this one, there's a group of prophets in Bethel. It's a group of people that still worshipped and loved God. But in general, Bethel came to symbolize everything that was wrong with Israel at this time in its history. So Elisha, in response calls down this curse in the name of the Lord. Now, when you think about this curse, this is really the key to understanding the passage. This is not just Elisha asking God to punish these boys. It's not just this impulsive reaction. What he's doing, the language of cursing in the Bible is very specific. It's directly tied to the law of Moses. When you hear cursing or curses You want to think directly back to the law that God gave Israel at Mount Sinai through Moses. That's where the curses are described. Because that law, and we'll look at this in our series in Exodus, that law that God gave to Moses, it didn't just contain a whole lot of commandments. It didn't just contain the 613 commandments for how Israel was to live. It also prescribed the consequences for them either keeping the law or not keeping the law. And these are listed as curses and blessings. And they're right there in the book of Leviticus. The blessings are what would happen to Israel if they kept the law. That if, you, if you're faithful to the covenant that I'm making with you, says God, that your land will be plentiful, your crops will flourish, you have lots of kids, you'll, you'll have peace, won't be warfare, you'll be established as a great nation. These are the blessings. But then alongside the blessings, there are the curses. There's a list of curses of things that are going to take place if you forsake me and if you forsake my covenant. Now, just turn back for a second to Leviticus 26. I want to show you something here back in this list of curses in Leviticus. Leviticus 26 is just a chapter of half of it is blessings, half of it is the curses. It's just divided in two very neatly. And in chapter 26, verse 21, here is what God says in the middle of the list of curses. If you remain hostile toward me, And refuse to listen to me. I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you, and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. So there it is right there. In the law, God has already spelled out exactly what was going to happen if Israel remained unfaithful. And this is not that God's not saying, hey, if you just break one little rule, I'm going to send the bears. He's not saying, oh, but if you just sort of drop the ball once or twice, you know, you're going to have to face the wild animals. He's saying if you read this chapter, he saying, if you persist time after time, if you continue time up, this is what's going to happen. And then if you continue there, and if you just continue, this is a penalty for stubborn, willful, disobedient, continuous turning away from God just a blatant refusal time after time after time to turn back to God despite him drawing Israel to himself. And God is saying, if you consistently turn away from me, eventually one of the things, one of the curses that will be invoked is there will be wild animals that come and you'll be bereft of your children. So when you fast forward to 2 Kings 2 and you look at that story, what you are seeing is God activating that clause in the covenant activating that specific part of the covenant, which is exactly what he said he will do. In one sense, you could even say that this story of Elisha and the bears represents God being faithful to the covenant because God's faithfulness has two sides to it. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to do exactly what he said he would do, and that means he's faithful to bless when he said he would bless And he will be faithful to bring the curse when he said that he will bring the curse. And if the families of these boys had listened to the prophets, if they'd listened to the law, if they'd gone back to Leviticus 26 and read the covenant curses and the covenant blessings, they would have said this is exactly what God told us would happen if we continue to bow down to these stupid golden calves that we made rather than turn to the one true living God. That doesn't take away from the awfulness of the story. God didn't take any delight in this. God didn't take some kind of masochistic pleasure in sending bears against these young men. But God is doing what he said he would do after repeated warnings, sending this punishment upon his people in accordance with his covenant. This is really a covenant story. It's not a story about respecting your elders, even though that's a good thing to do. It's not a story that teaches a moral nugget of truth. It's a story about Israel's binding covenant with Yahweh, their God, which includes blessings and includes curses. And here you are seeing one of the most negative parts of that covenant coming to fruition as Israel's turned completely away from the God who saved them. Now, we can't leave the story there. That's its context in the Old Testament. But we need to pull it right through. We need to pull it right through the biblical story. Because in the New Testament, this story takes on even more depth. I want to turn over for just a second to Galatians chapter 3. This rounds out the picture of what the covenant blessings and the covenant curses are all about and where the story eventually ends up. In Galatians chapter 3, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. In verse 13, Christ, that's Jesus, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree or a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So when Paul uses this language of blessings and curses, he's tapping back into the law again. He's tapping back into the old testament It's not blessings and curses in a generic sense. It's got a very specific meaning. And what Paul is saying is that when Jesus died, he didn't just die for our sin in a general sense. But within that, he took upon himself the penalty for Israel's failure to keep the covenant. He took upon himself the curses that were prescribed for Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. So all these curses that are there that prescribe that what's going to happen to Israel, Jesus willingly came under the curse for Israel. He took the judgment side of the equation on Israel's behalf. In fact, the language is even stronger, Paul says, not just that he took a curse upon himself, but that he became a curse that he became Christ was somehow turned into a curse on the cross. He became a curse for Israel and for us. That doesn't mean that every single thing that's listed in the curses literally happened to Jesus. Jesus didn't get mauled by bears as far as we know. But representative, he took our curse upon himself. He took Israel's curse upon himself. He took the fullness of the weight of the judgment of God upon himself willingly and freely in his body on the cross. That's what Christ has done for us. He suffered in our place. He died in our place. He became a curse so that we would not be under a curse. Because here's the reality. Much as you don't like that story about Elisha and the bear, as much as you might kind of mock it and laugh at that story, we're all those young men. Every one of us are those young men. Every one of us have said to God, Shove off. You can go back to heaven. I don't want a bar of you. I want to live my way. You might just do that through ignoring God. You might do that through convincing yourself God doesn't exist. We've got a bunch of ways to do it. We've just told God, you just go back to your home. I will live my way on my terms. Thank you very much. I'll bow down to whatever I want to bow down to. We're all those young men. We all deserve the bears. We all deserve the curse. We all deserve the judgment of God. And here's what Christ has done. Taken that for us. Didn't have to. We didn't deserve it. Christ has done it freely. And he's done it so that the blessing might come to us instead of the curse. So that rather than being stuck under the curse of sin, the curse of God's judgment, you and I, through the sheer mercy and pleasure of God, might receive blessing in our lives. And interestingly, when Paul describes that blessing, he doesn't just go back to the law and detail the blessings in the Mosaic law. He goes back to Abraham and he says, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's every one of us who is not Jewish, that we might be brought into the story, that we might be grafted into the people of God. That means that if you belong to Jesus, you become a child of Abraham. You become brought into the family, the people of blessing, become a child of God, become part of the family, receive forgiveness of sins. We receive the promise of the Spirit. That's what Paul says, the promised Holy Spirit. That's the blessing Christ purchased for us. The Spirit of God now takes up residence in our life, takes away our filth, takes away our dirt, takes away our selfishness, takes away all of our idolatries, takes away all of our excuses, takes away all the things that we've built up as resistance to God, just gives us that fresh, clean start, that new slate in our lives. This is what Christ does for every single person who turns to Him in faith. He forgives us, cleanses us, washes us, renews us, and gives us a right standing before God as part of His family. It's what the Bible calls eternal life. That's what we receive. That's the blessing that we receive through Christ. And that means that now we don't need to fear. If you belong to Jesus, you don't need to fear the curse. You don't need to get all worried about the curse because you are under the blessing of God. What it means is that now, as the church of God, we are Bethel. We are the house of God, aren't we? We are the people of God, filled with the Spirit. And we don't have to fear the curse and the judgment of God anymore because Christ has taken our place. We deserve to hang there and die. But He did it for us so that the blessing of God, the life, the freedom of God can be poured into our life. I want to make one very specific application of this as we finish this morning. You know, there's times in your life, I don't know whether you've experienced this, where a series of things go wrong in quite close proximity. Have you experienced that? Maybe, maybe a number of deaths in your family that happen quite quickly. Or a whole lot of bad stuff just happens at once and things just seem to converge and you just don't know why this is happening. A whole lot of stuff just seems to be really untimely in your life and you're not sure whether it's coincidence. And what we can start to think at those times is maybe I'm under a curse. I don't know whether, you, if you're a spiritual kind of person, I don't know whether you've ever wondered that. Maybe there's some sort of curse Maybe there's a curse on my family. Maybe there's a curse on my home. Maybe there's a generational curse that's been passed down and and now I'm somehow inheriting it. Maybe there's some kind of curse over my life. I picked up a book this week off my bookshelf by a guy called Derek Prince. And uh, Derek Prince does teach some good things from Scripture. But this is not one of them. This is not one of them. This is really bad stuff. He has a chapter, this is a book called How to Pass from Curse to Blessings, and he's got a chapter here that he calls Seven Indications of a Curse. Again, let me just say, this is not me, this is him. Here are his seven indications that you could be under a curse. Number one, mental or emotional breakdown. Two, repeated or chronic illness. Three, barrenness or a tendency to miscarry or related female problems. Breakdown of marriage and family alienation, continuing financial insufficiency, being accident prone, and number seven, a history of suicides and unnatural or untimely deaths. He's saying that if you experience these things over a long period of time, you are under a curse. And then he's got a series of steps as to how you can revoke this curse. And I want to say as respectfully as I can, this is absolutely wrong. And this is absolutely unbiblical. And it's not only wrong, but it's toxic. And it's damaging. Are you really going to tell someone who's struggling with depression that they are under a curse? You're really going to tell a woman struggling with infertility that she is under a curse? That is toxic. And we should never, ever say that. Because what this does is completely undermines the sufficiency of what Christ has done on the cross. What that kind of thinking does, it takes us back to the Old Testament and it ignores that Christ has become the curse for us. I mean, maybe if we were back in Elijah's day, maybe I could just about swallow that, but we're not. Christ has come. He has become a curse for us so that we receive the blessing. You are not under a curse if you belong to Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, then in in a sense, you are still under the curse of sin. But that still doesn't mean bad things are going to happen to you in life. This means that you haven't yet been removed from the curse of sin through belonging to Christ. But if you are a Christian, there is no curse on your life. It doesn't matter how many bad things have happened, no matter how coincidental things might seem, no matter the concentration of terrible things in your life, you are not under a curse. Because either you're under a curse or Christ has become a curse, and it's not both. can't be both. Christ has become a curse so that you are under blessing. I would say in this community, probably in this room right now, every one of those seven things is represented. You know, if we, if we went around, I'd say just about every one of those situations, there'd be someone sitting here that's affected now by one of those things. And you need to know if that's you, you are not under a curse. Those things happen because we live in a fallen, stuffed up, messed up, broken, fundamentally dysfunctional world that is where Satan still has a whole lot of power. But even in that world, those of us who belong to Jesus can still say, I am blessed. I'm blessed. And it's not because good things are necessarily happening in my life. They may not be. Things may get worse rather than better. It's not that there's going to be some great financial success that comes into my life or my health issues or whatever are going to disappear. It's because Christ has died for me and I'm free. I'm free. I have eternal life. My heart is free. I'm in the kingdom of God. I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I know who I am because I know whose I am. That's where my identity comes from and I don't have to spend my life running around trying to figure it out. I know exactly who I am. My identity is grounded in Christ. That's the blessing. And you have that blessing if you belong to Jesus no matter what stuff might be going on in your life. So no more silly talk about curses. No more trying to revoke the curse and maybe you're under a curse and all that. No, no, no. That's finished. Christ has taken that away. Christ has become a curse. The blessing now flows to us. Let's celebrate the blessing. Let's celebrate the fact that we're no longer under a curse, but through the love and the grace of Jesus, we have passed from curse to blessing. And let's live fully and confidently in the abundant blessing of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have died for us, that you became a curse. For us father we're all like the people of bethel and we just rage against you god and every one of us in our life we've just fought against you and we've distracted ourselves with so many other things and we've constructed so many arguments against you and god in light of your glory they all just melt away Father, I want to pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know what it is to live in the blessing of Christ. I want to pray for anyone here this morning who's not yet taken hold of that blessing, who's just still stuck in sin, still stuck in their selfishness. Father, I pray that by your love, you'd set them free, not out of fear, God, not out of guilt, but just by the gentle love of your spirit i pray it would be your kindness that leads us to repentance and for those of us that know you and love you help us to live fully in the blessing of christ to be grateful to be thankful that we can approach your throne of grace with confidence we pray these things for christ's sake amen this has been a teaching message from shore community church for more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.